I think it was a really great perspective that, that it gave me of actually being in the investor's shoes right first, because I, I was able to invest and I intentionally invested with a bunch of different people in different geographies. I mean, one for diversification, but two, I wanted, especially once I got it in my mind, like I, this is what I want to do. I wanted to see how other people operated and I wanted to be able to take what I liked and, and leave what I didn't. And so you found the real estate law podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. I'm Jason Muth. We're here again with attorney broker Rory Gill from Next Home Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. And we have an amazing guest. We have Kent Ritter on. And Kent is a former management consultant. He's a startup owner. He's a corporate executive turned full-time real estate investor and operator. He's got a lot of stuff going on, a bunch of syndicated deals. He is working, he's a big proponent of financial independence and you know, working toward, you know, keeping your time as valuable as it is and you know, moving away from W2 jobs. I'd love to hear about what's going on, how he was able to do that in his career, as I'm sure a lot of you that are listening are working toward that. And he's coming to us from Indianapolis. And we love people from Indiana, so we want to welcome him to the podcast. So, Kent, welcome. Awesome. Well, hey, that was a great introduction. Thanks so much, Jason and, and Rory. Thanks, you guys, for, for having me on the show today. We should welcome Rory Gill as well. I didn't welcome you, did I? No, you skipped past me today, but that's okay. We're going to, I guess, jump right into the theme of I the day, which you. is... Kent, welcome best. Well, Rory and I are here all the time. So, you know, but your home is now our home. Yeah, as I say, you know, what we were talking about before the, the show, though, is that Midwestern hospitality. I couldn't help it. I saw Rory sitting there. I just I had to say hi. We did say that beforehand. I mean, the, the Northeasterners, I think we're a little jaded and get right to the point. And the Midwesterners, <laughs> different way unto yourself. And We got more good. time, you know. Does everything take longer or everyone just takes longer in the Midwest or everyone just slows down a little bit? I spent a lot of time working in the Northeast, so I can compare. I mean, definitely just the slower cadence and like rhythm of speech talking and mm-hmm. think a uh, little, little more of the relationship side. Way less straightforward, especially as you, I found as you go like North in the Midwest, you know, it's uh, a lot of stuff happens behind the scenes. And so, uh, you know, it I doesn't just, really. I think the, the nice thing about being in the Northeast is, is usually, you know, where you stand with people. Rory, that's come up before on this podcast because we do talk to people across the country. I guess it's an art to avoiding the, the judgment and the directness, but it's also uh, mysterious to us. If you know, if somebody says, bless your heart up here, yeah. we just assume that they're being nice, but that's not true everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the classic Southern, you know, get the hell out of here. I got to introduce that into, the, into my vernacular somehow. <laughs> I should mention that Kent is also a podcast host unto himself. Kent has an amazing podcast called Ritter on Real Estate, which you could find across all the podcast platforms. You can find it on his website, kentritter.com. He has litany of amazing guests of all different types in the real estate world. Let's start there. Like, What's it been like hosting your podcast? I mean, we can compare some notes. Yeah, it's been just an incredible experience. So we just, well, I guess, you know, by the time this post will be well past, but we just had our hundredth episode, you know, and that that was a cool milestone. And I just, over the past two years, uh, the amount that I've learned is just incredible. I mean, I mean, the cool thing is, right, is you you get to talk to, and I, I hope I fall in this category, you get to talk to like successful, interesting people all the time. 
Right. And that's what I love about it. It's like my network has grown so much. It's grown nationally because everybody I talk to is a successful person in real estate in, in some way. And so it's been very impactful for my business and it's been a lot of fun. And it's honestly just helped me to get out of my shell and just be comfortable putting myself out there. Like that was, you know, I, I had it on my list of goals in 2019 to start a podcast and I didn't start it until April of 2020. Mm-hmm. Because when COVID hit, I didn't have any excuses anymore. I sit around the house. It's like, well, you know, I can't talk to anybody. I can't go anywhere. So I might as well start a podcast. But what, the reason it took me so long is really just all my own limiting beliefs of, you know, what do I have to say? Who's going to listen to me? And, you know, all that good stuff. And, and lo and behold, you know, a couple of years later, we average about 20,000 downloads a month. And, you know, it's the growth has been pretty incredible and the feedback has been incredible. And so I think it, it taught me, and, th- and this is, Uh, what a mentor of mine told me when I was starting was, look, it's not about, there's already a million podcasts, like who's going to listen, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's not about necessarily what you're saying. It's about how you say it. And there's going to be people that resonate with you that don't resonate with me and vice versa. And, And you may say something in a way that really hits home with somebody and changes their life when I would have said it a different way and they wouldn't have been impacted. And so that really was like, when I started thinking about it that way, that's really what got me off the fence to say like, yeah, you know, I can't make an impact. I can't get out there. And like you said, my, one of my huge passions is financial freedom because I just, you know, uh, it's too many of us tethered to jobs that we don't like, and, and there's yeah. different ways of doing it. And I thought I was a good, re- I thought I was a savvy investor. You know, I was a finance major in college I, I, with a focus on investments, always an active stock investor, but I had no idea about the world of real estate investing and how impactful that can be. So when I found out about it and I started realizing the benefits of that, I was like, man, I got to start telling more people about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it sounds very similar as to why we started this, which we did start this one also in 2019. And we took a hiatus after we had our daughter, but we did eight episodes and then we hit the wall of the, oh my God, we have to deal with the newborn now. And they say, if you can make it past eight episodes, you know, like you're more likely to succeed with a podcast. And we were right there at that precipice of success or failure. And then once we rebooted it and, you know, we, we've been reaching out to a lot of people like yourself and hearing from other people that want to be on the podcast. I think I have the same experience that you just shared, being able to talk to all these great experts across the country, you know, building a network of folks, hearing from people. We hear from people all the time. I heard from a high school friend of mine yesterday talking about information that, you know, he was getting off the podcast, which, you know, is yeah. great because we're impacting other people as well. We're not just talking to ourselves. And yeah. Yeah, you just put it out there. You find an audience and, you know, hopefully they'll stick around. And, you know, here we are. I mentioned to you, this is, I don't know what number this is going to be. I think it's like 56 or 57 for us. Pretty committed to it. And, you know, we love hearing from people like yourself do things very different from what we do, you know, here in Boston. And it, it helps us expand our network. I mean, Rory, you've had people, you know, come up to you and talk about the podcast, at least the Real Estate Law podcast. And what's the feedback you've gotten about that? It just kind of grabs people's attention. And it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, people, you know, are listening to it, but I mean, it's kind of shaken all the assumptions that I've made. I mean, we've kind of taken our path toward investing and, you know, we've done, we started with basically small unit short-term rentals, but talking to people who are active in different spheres has really kind of made me think about what else can we do that's bigger? You know, it's given me the confidence that it can be done, even though that what we've done has felt 
pretty ambitious. We can see that there is a lot more that can be done. And then we've had a, a lot of innovative ideas that would have escaped me. So my perspective is certainly broadened with in different regions of the country, but also different types. I mean, we've talked about industrial real estate. Today, we'll be talking about you know larger syndications, just different strategies that really haven't been on my personal radar. And you know, I work in the business, so I feel like I should know all this stuff. But there are a lot of people out there who are finding creative ways to kind of break free of dependence on a job and also just kind of find something that they're passionate about within the real estate space. Yeah. I think that's one of the cool things about real estate is like, there's a thousand different ways to do it. Yeah. You, know, you, you can, you can figure out your, your own special mix of how to get it done. And it's just not taught in colleges. Like it just isn't. I mean, it wasn't when I was in school. I don't think it was, it is today to the level that a real student of the game can get it because I mean, a lot of college kids, they're smart people, but they're, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. You know, I think there's a little bit of life experience you have to see as a real estate investor. Um, and I'm sure you've encountered this with some of the people you've spoken to on your podcast, you've probably been open to new opportunities as well that you weren't aware of, or you know, a new topic or a new way that you can invest in something just by hosting Ritter on real estate. Hundred percent, because like like you said, I do multifamily, right? So I focus on a pretty specific niche, like fifty to two hundred unit properties within the Midwest, where we can add some value to them. But I've had people on the show that like buy land, you know, flip land, or uh, we just had a woman on who does uh, short-term rentals and vacation markets. Like that was really interesting because I don't, I don't know much at all about Airbnb and how that works and, or no portfolios or, I mean, gosh, just everything. Yeah. I think it's probably about picking a niche and specializing in it, you know, running down that road. And I really want to hear more about your 50 to 200 unit apartment complexes and whatnot. But can you take us back to just the why behind you're doing all this in the first place? You know, I read a little bit on your website as to what the motivation is. We talked a little bit about financial independence, but can Mm -hmm. you dig a little bit deeper into, you know, what set you down this path? Yeah. I mean, what originally set me down this path was my family, a very personal goal or, or agenda, right? What is how I started. And then as I got into it, it kind of broadened and become this larger thing. But really it was about my family. It was about specifically my kids. So like, yeah, on my website, I, I kind of tell this story where I, I, I was a management consultant previously. And as a management consultant, you're basically gone all the time. Like I would fly out Monday, fly back Thursday, be home Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and head back out again, right? And so that was fine when I was single and you know young and and just having fun. But once I got married, and especially once I had our first child, and we have three now, you know, I just had this moment where I was sitting on the plane, and, and I, I could still very vibrant in, in my memory. I'm just sitting on the tarmac, like you're getting ready to take off, and Monday morning early, and I'm flying out, and I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, I got a wife and a new baby at home, and I'm flying across the country. I'm not going to see him for like four days. Like, this is not what I want to be doing. This is not the type of, of dad I want to be. It's not the type of husband I want to be. You know, I want to be around. I want to be present. Like, I, I want to be at all my kids' events. You know, like what was cool. Because now that I've gone down this path, so like like as the school year's ending, uh, my my kids had these like like presentations, you know, and things going on for their classes, and like like you know, ten, one was at ten o'clock, one was at like one o'clock. Like most people couldn't just be like, yeah, I'm gonna make it to all of them, and like I've been able to go to everything, and I, like I love that. That's exactly why I started out on this whole mission. That was about 2015, and then. From about 2015 to 2019, I, I was really just 
investing with other people. So I was investing passively in other people's deals, right? And, and, and through that time, I really just learned the power of real estate and what it can do to your wealth because I started having these deals that I invested in sell and seeing the money come back and understanding the tax benefits and all the good things of why we invest in real estate. And, and then I'm starting to talk to my friends in that time about, you know, well, do you invest in real you know, what do you guys do? And just nobody knew anything about it, right? I didn't know about it until 2015. And I've been investing, you know, pretty, like I said, I thought I was a pretty advanced investor. And so I really was like, wow, I got I to be telling more people about this. Like, what if I could not just improve my situation, but all the people around me? And I think everybody around me's situation would be improved if they had some real estate in their portfolio. And so, um, so that was really a catalyst for two things. One was starting the podcast, just to kind of evangelize like, hey, the guys, there's a different way we need to know about this. Like it's not marketed to us, right? All the marketing is about your 401k and putting money in the stock market. And like stock market's fine. 401ks, I don't think really work. I think we're finding that out now as if we have the first people now really starting to retire off that 401k. And we're finding that people just don't have enough money. But all that being said, going back to it, to start the podcast, to evangelize about it, and then to start Hudson Investing, which is the business I have now to actually help people get into those deals and facilitate those type of deals for people and being able to invest with somebody that knows what they're doing, has the expertise, the infrastructure and all that. And so, so really it was that mission of like, gosh, like if everybody could be doing what they loved and not tethered to jobs that they hate, wouldn't we all just be in a better world? And I know that's kind of an idealistic thing, but like, God, wouldn't we all just be a little happier if, if we got up every morning and did what we loved? And mm-hmm. I thought if I could make a little dent in that and, and start a business and have fun doing it, that was kind of the catalyst of, of starting Hudson Investing. Those first couple of years from 15 to 19 that you said that you were investing other people's deals. So these were like syndicated deals where you were one of the investors. Yeah. Were you still working in your consulting job or your W2 job at that time? I was. Yeah. And so I had a little bit of a different path because in 2010, uh, I started with some colleagues. We started our own consulting business. And so we grew that from 2010 to 2015. And then in 2015, we at the end of the year, we sold that business. And so that that's what gave me some capital. But you know, most people don't realize like when you sell a business, like you don't just get to like walk away. They're not just like, here's a check and like, okay, see ya. We had like a four-year earnout period where uh, we had to stay around to make sure that like the business actually produced income that the company bought. Right, all the senior leadership can't just walk away. I was there, and so I was kind of doing it, but my my passion definitely wasn't in it because my passion was for building the business. You know, that was really my passion. That was like ten years in. At that point, I was kind of burnt out, honestly, with like the client service part of it, mm-hmm. just beating my head against the wall trying to tell people to change, and they're like, "I don't want to change." <laughs> but but I had a passion for building the business. I love that. So once we sold that passion, kind of left, and so I was kind of going through the motions at the job, still traveling a ton. That was really when I had that moment because we had my. Um, my first daughter in February, 2016. And that was really when I had that moment of like, you know, got to figure out a way out of this. Like after that earnout's over, like I do not want to keep doing this anymore. And I had to find the path and through different ways, networking, I mean, I just found real estate and I realized that was the path. And then just as I learned more, I just fell in love with it. And then, then you know, I'm not one to sit still. And so I, I decided like, my management consulting experience, my previous business experience really related well into real estate investing and like running these larger scale projects. Cause that's what I was doing in management. So there's running like multi-million dollar projects. And so I decided that to launch the own business and start not just investing with others, but doing it on my own. Mm-hmm. I did that, that grind also for much of my twenties, nine years. On yeah. The road. You get it. And it. You do. Yeah. Age 22 to 31. And I was looking for the pivot out. You know, I was saying, how do I stop? 
And how do I do something where I could be a little more local? I didn't get into real estate at the time. I just got to a local job in Boston. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is it is tough. It's a grind, especially with a family and a young family. And I bet that, you know, if one of our listeners right now is, you know, that 30-something, you know, whippersnapper moving up in the consulting world, also in the back of their head saying, How do I get out? It's that little kind of angel and devil you have in your head where you like what you're doing. You're trying to be upperly mobile, but then you're like, oh, this is just a lot. It's a lot of hotel nights. At least when you were in Indianapolis, you can kind of go in any direction, you know, and you're just a yeah. couple hour flight. If you're on the East Coast, you know, those West Coast flights back and forth, man, that's a lot. It was. Um, I mean, I was in Chicago at the time, but I spent two years flying back between Chicago and Seattle and Chicago and San Francisco. And so it was like yeah. four hour flights twice a week all the time. It wears on you. And to those people that are in that position, like, here's what I want to tell people. Cause like, it's hard because I mean, these companies are very adept at putting those golden handcuffs on, mm-hmm. you know, you get tied up in a lot of things and you have options and you have all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's really hard to walk away from, but like, I've never been happier. I mean, I, I would 100% say, figure out a way to do it. You can't trade stock options for happiness. And so, I mean, it's definitely worth it, even though everybody's going to tell you you're crazy. I mean, I, I was leaving like a high six-figure job, right? I mean, my whole family told me I was nuts. They're like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? This is stupid. Yeah. But you just, when you're an entrepreneur, you got to realize like it's a, there's not a lot of people that are, that understand you or think the way that you do. And so you just, you can't listen to all that. And, and my recommendation would be to find, find some groups of, of people that are like-minded that can support you because you're probably not going to find that in your family and, and your, your drinking buddies. Yeah. Corey, do you have clients that are like that, that are kind of looking for their way out or people you've encountered, you know, kind of out and about at networking groups and whatnot? It, it seems like a pretty standard type of person. We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. I mean, that's a pretty common theme I've had for people who either engage with us as client or people who even approach us looking to become an agent because it's a it's a change of pace that allows you to be busy, but define your own schedule and to be a, a little bit local. So, you know, if you're listening to us on that flight to Cleveland early Monday morning, take some inspiration here. There's a way out. It's hard, but there are a lot of other people in a, a similar position to you. And a lot of people have found their their way out and found their own path. Not easy. And it's not something that necessarily you want to do overnight. You want to leverage your, your W-2 job into mm-hmm. something that could, you know, into those first investments and the network that you have in your existing position. Those are valuable assets that you have to leverage. So it's not about cutting ties with your past, but it's about leveraging what you've done to move yeah. on. That's a great point. Those colleagues become some of your best first investors. If you are going into a field where you are looking for investors, those colleagues are some of your best first investors. And yeah, I mean, just just to the point of, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but you can definitely make it happen. Yeah. But like from 16 to 19, I mean, the other thing I was doing was I was building up that passive income so that I could leave. Like I Mm -hmm. definitely do not recommend just like 
cutting ties and not having, not having a little bit of a safety net. Right. Like that's why I was investing so much. Mm-hmm. Well, with other people, I was, I was taking my money and putting it into these investments so I could generate cash flow, So that I would have some cushion when I, uh, when I eventually left. Yeah. One of the big points of the fire movement, you know, financially independent, retire early is to have multiple sources of income, you know, and you just mentioned that's what you're doing. You had some cash coming in during that period where you were part of the, that four year, what'd you call it? The management period. Yeah. And you were having money coming in. So you get the confidence to actually kind of make that pivot away once that was done. Can you comment a bit about what you learned from being an investor in syndication deals to then suddenly becoming the one raising the capital for your own deals. Yeah, I actually, I learned a ton and I think it was a really great perspective that it gave me of actually being in the investor's shoes right first. I was able to invest and I intentionally invested with a bunch of different people in different geographies. I mean, one for diversification, but two, I wanted, especially once I got it in my mind, like this is what I want to do. I wanted to see how other people operated and I wanted to be able to take what I liked and, and leave what I didn't. And so a couple of things really stuck out to me is, you know, communication really matters. And, you know, you're giving the minimum investment in in our deals and in a lot of deals of the type, a lot of people that do what I do, it's typically about $50,000. So it's not a small amount of money, you know? And so if you're giving somebody $50,000 or $100,000, it doesn't feel very good if you don't hear from them for like six months. And you're just like, you're like, what is going on? Like, you know, did they, did they take off? Are they still around? You know, what's going on with my money? And so, and I had that happen a couple of times. We just like couldn't get a hold of the sponsor and it didn't make me feel very good. And so I said, you know, when I start mine, like, I don't want to do that. And so, for example, like we send out monthly updates on all of our properties. Just here's what's going on. You know, here's some key metrics, just like a one pager, but just so people know we're there, we didn't take off, we're still working, you know, and, and, and let them just have, have an understanding of what's going on. So I think communication is paramount. And I just think like beyond that, like anything that you can do to make it easier for the investors, you know, just trying to like there's there's a lot of friction in the process because it's definitely not it's gotten more sophisticated. We have investor portals now where people can go in and they can log in, like create an account. But that those are a lot of those are just a couple of years old. It's definitely not as easy as going on like your Charles Schwab account online right, and making a stock investment. So any way that we could reduce friction in that process or things that, that I was trying to focus on. But yeah, I mean, communication was a huge one. The other one was, you know, I, I was involved in a deal. The second investment I, I, I ever made where the guy actually committed fraud and we, the investors, we lost our money. And so uh, it really taught me a lot about you know, it's kind of shame on me because, because I really didn't do my homework. I didn't really know what homework needed to be done at that point. Right. And I didn't look into the sponsor and I, I didn't really vet him. And so it really taught me a lot about, you know, the, the importance of the sponsor that the sponsor plays and uh, the importance of just being, you know, I think transparent and helping people build trust, helping that trust connection come. I guess I don't know how to say mm-hmm. that, but like, like just being transparent and being open and so that people can build that trust because it's, it's a big leap, right? To make that first investment. And I've seen firsthand how it can go wrong. So I think the importance of the sponsor and having a good sponsor and having a sponsor that has integrity and, and has financial means and has a good track record, right? Those things are all critical and, and, and things that I did not look at at all on that deal. The other is I, I'd been involved in a deal that, that had a capital call, meaning like they had to go back to the investment 
investors and asked for more money because something came up and they didn't have enough money to, to fund it. And like, that doesn't feel very good either. You're kind of in your mind, like, am I throwing good money after bad here? Like what's going on? Right. So never want to have that happen. And like, knock on wood, we haven't. Um, but I think the reason we haven't is because I've been through that experience and I'm hypersensitive to it. And so I try to just load extra cash into our deals in, in different reserves, basically different rainy day funds. So like if whatever construction project we're doing, I'm throwing 10% on top of that in case things go high. We're front loading a few months of working capital, right? We're, we're putting in like interest rates have been going up, up and down, well, up, not up and down, up, up, oh. up, right? And so we've started putting just even interest rate carries into our deals, which is just extra cash as rates go up so that we can, you know, stabilize cash flow, right? And things like that. So just we try to be really conservative and put a lot of different cash in our deals in a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of buckets we can pull from in a rainy day when we need them. And we never have to go back to the investors and say, hey guys, we need more money. Those are some of them. How many investors do you typically have in any of your in your current deals? Yeah, it, it all just depends on the deal size. What I can tell you is the average investment amount is right about $70,000. Our minimum is 50. So we have like a lot of people coming in at 50. And then we have people come in, you know, 100, 150, 200. A few people will come in above that. But it just just depends on how how big the deal is and, and how much money we need. Yeah. I'm just kind of trying to pull some questions out, you know, because a lot of yeah. people probably listen saying, you know, I hear so much about, you know, wholesale deals and syndication and, you know, being part of these investments, but I don't really know where to start. So they're probably yeah. the same questions everyone else asks. What do you think is an average amount of time that somebody is going to have their money in one of your deals or a deal of this nature? So I tell people like you can, you should only invest money that you aren't going to need in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so most of our deals all of actually all of our deals have sold before five years, but I just try to tell people like we always underwrite them in kind of a three-year, if what, what's a three-year hold look like? And then what does a five-year hold look like? And, and so the five-year numbers are always lower than the three-year because we usually have a, a, you know, a big bump at the beginning. And then we're pretty conservative with our, our like organic growth. So we'll grow rents, you know, 3% or so over time. Yeah. The answer is I tell people you need to have money that you're not going to need for the next five years. Yeah. We've done a couple of these ourselves, like where we were investors in them. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think we learned a couple of things along the way. You definitely touched upon communication. I can think of one of the deals that we did with good communication and one with not as good communication. I did something unrelated to real estate where there was a Facebook group of investors afterward and the whole thing went sour and it became ugly on there. You know, so you can imagine yeah. the perils of social media. And when you empower a group of a hundred people, a couple hundred people or so who put some money into something and then when it goes under, they all get angry. No, yeah, I, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking back and there's definitely a couple of things that I would do a little differently if I were to go into a deal like this myself. Again, one thing that I think we would do a little differently was the kind of the source of the funds. So I think that we invested and we were pulling money out and carrying interest on the money because it was coming out of like a HELOC or something. Yeah. And I don't know if I factored into my calculations, you know, the interest I'd be carrying for the duration. Do you think that your investors are looking at it with that level of sophistication? Like, are they, do they have this money sitting on the side that it's earning 0.01% interest rate in a savings account? That's why they're investing with you. Or are they pulling money out of a HELOC or a cash out refi, parking it with you? Like, where do you think the source is coming from? 
I think a lot of people are, are pulling it out, just from conversations I have, a lot of people are pulling it out of savings accounts, out of CDs, annuities, things that, you know, maybe they thought were going were gonna to be good. But I think a lot of people were just parking their cash and they didn't really know, again, they didn't know about this option, right? And they're like, well, I don't have any more money in the stock market, don't really know where else to put it. Um, and so I think a lot of people are coming out of those type of accounts. We have a lot of people that invest uh, through their IRAs, their self-directed IRAs, you know, is another primary source. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I don't know the source of, of everyone's funds, but I... I don't know if people have invested with a HELOC or, or not. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, you definitely got to factor in those interest rates. Yeah. But just by bringing all those up, you know, that if you're mm-hmm. listening to this, you know, think about all the different ways that you can tap into capital if you want yeah. to invest in a deal like this. I know Rory was about to say something. No, I was going to say, I mean, this is a, a conversation. When we talked to, to different people of, with different investing strategies, there is a kind of a big gap between kind of active investments, the person who wants to go out there and swing a hammer and actually build a property themselves and kind of feel that appreciation, the cash flow that's resulting from that versus the passive investor who would be getting involved with syndication. And I think yeah. they're pretty self-evident as to to where you are. But I wonder if you ever have experience with people who are excited to, to partner with you and then actually are looking to have more of an active role and feel like either they're not being communicated with or is a different path if somebody's going to go in and be a passive investor. So yes, I, th- I think that that does happen, right? I mean, I was, I was in that position, right? When I was, I mean, toward the end of my passive investing, you know, I, I was doing it because I was I wanted to learn how, how the active guys do it. I try to be upfront with people. I let people know. I was like, hey, you know, I'm investing with you, but like, I also want to learn from you. Mm-hmm. You know, some people were like, cool. Others were like, nah, not for me. And so I think if you're, if you, if that is the angle you're approaching it with, I think just be upfront with the sponsor and like, let them know, because, you know, I think what I'm just going to be completely honest. Uh, here's an honest moment where I think what sponsors, deal sponsors like me hate are like the people that come in with, with a hundred questions and want to invest $25,000, you know? And it's like, you spend so much time and that's, and, and it's like, I get it because everybody has to start somewhere and I'm happy. I'm grateful for every investor, but I think you just have to, as an investor, be mindful of kind of where you fit in, in the broader ecosystem, because that's going to be a turnoff to people that are running the deals. If, if you're a monopoly, you know, if you're a very small amount of the money, but monopolizing a majority of their time, 100%, you should ask questions. I just think be thoughtful about it. Like I've just had a couple of times where I think people have just downloaded lists off the internet of like all the questions to ask yeah. and literally shown up and been like, I have 40 questions I need to ask you mm-hmm. like, okay, well, I have a half hour. Let's try to get through as many as we can, you know, but I think it, it very much is a great way to see if it is something that you might want to do and talk to the sponsor and understand the amount of work. What I try to tell people is like, unless you really love it, because I have a lot of people I talk to, they meet me on LinkedIn or wherever. And they say, Hey, can I just pick your brain about being a syndicator? And I say, look, unless you really love the process, like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Like, like you can get great returns being a passive investor. Yes, you get better returns if you're actually running the deal, but it's not worth it to me unless you really like it. Because it's also like, you got to judge risk too, right? And there's a lot of risk in taking on other people's money and doing these projects. So I tell people, it's like, look, especially if they have another business or something, I actually was just having a conversation with a guy last night who has another business. He's like, you know, I've been thinking about being active, but after talking with you, I think I might just invest with you. And that allowed me to focus on my other business. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely right. Like you should focus on your highest and best use. And if you have another business where you can actively create 
cash flow, right? And then you can take that money and funnel that money into passive investments, which are also giving you like 15, 20, 25% returns, then you're just, you're just multiplying at that point, right? That's exactly what you should be doing. You shouldn't be trying to figure out how to now start investing in real estate too. Like double down and build your core business. I was going to say 8% returns. You're saying 15, 20, like you got to get me a link how do I how do I invest? That's awesome. No, but that is the ultimate. I mean, think about it. If somebody's got a you know a million million and a half dollars to park, and they can make eight percent of that money every year and sit back and go on vacation and work out, like who wouldn't do that, right? If you can cover your living expenses with yeah. your investments in the most ultimate passive thing, I think people get well. I mean, your example of the twenty five thousand dollar investor with the long list of questions, like. In my world, I work in a sales environment like you know my full-time job. And it's always the smaller clients that have the most questions and they require the most help. A call this week where you know we're presenting an idea and then we find out like the monthly budget's about like a thousand dollars incremental. And I'm like, okay, this really isn't all that much. And it's just a lot, you know, it's another 45-minute call. You have to go back and find this out from this other person, and then you have to go set everything up and say that it's just a lot of work, right? For mm-hmm. the smaller clients. But you know, they ask a lot of questions. Maybe it's because it's the only 25k they have to invest. Um, which yeah. if it is, maybe this isn't the avenue, you know, for them. Well, maybe they that right. And and I think that's where people need to be upfront too, because a lot of our deals, you have to be an accredited investor to invest. And there's certain criteria you have to meet. We've definitely had a few people like you go down the path and then it's time to fill out the paperwork. And it's like, it's like, cause you actually have to prove you're accredited. Like you have to, you can't just tell me and believe it. Mm-hmm. And we get there and they're like, Oh, actually, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, just, just be honest uh, up front. Right. And there's nothing wrong. Like everybody's got to get started somewhere. And like, actually, I think those, those people are taking the 25 grand and, and investing in a smart real estate deal like that. That's a great way to go. You just got to mm-hmm. make sure you're in the right type of deal. And I think my whole point is like, I'm not trying to say we, I don't want to answer the questions because I do. It's just like the respect just has to go both ways. And I think you just have to to recognize kind of where you are in the ecosystem yeah. you know, and, and make sure that. I totally get it. It's tough though. Cause a lot of times like you're meeting these people probably at like real estate meetups or online and you know, you're sharing a beer with them after you gave a speech or you heard somebody else talk or you're all just mm-hmm. there to, you know, hear somebody else talk about their deal. And you know, you're just, few guys or a guy and a woman talking, they're right there in front of you, right? You know, so, you know, you become collegial a little bit. And then next thing you know, you know, it becomes a long list of questions. And nobody knows how much money everyone has at those meetups. You know, you could be showing up with nothing. You could be showing up with, you know, $5 million to invest. And that's why I try to... Yeah, you know, I try to focus on education in other ways too. Like, like that's what the podcast is about, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I want to. My goal is to educate people as much as I can, so that when they're when they're showing up, they're ready to invest, right? Because what will happen with a lot of people is, you know, these investments fill up pretty quickly, and so like if you're if you're not educating yourself ahead of time, uh, then you might miss the boat you know, on the opportunity. I mean, it happens all the time and and I hate to see that, but it's always a first come first serve thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just, um, so maybe that's like the right lesson to to, to the listeners is take the time to educate yourself ahead of time. If you want to be a passive investor, you know, understand how the process works. Like even on my website, kentritter.com, here's the plug. I, I even have like, for new investors, like here's terminology, here's how it works. Here's frequently asked questions, like trying to front load that so that people can come in and be educated and, uh, and feel confident in what they're doing. 
We talked a lot about, you know, the, the benefits to the investors that, you know, work with you and the, the value you create for them. But I don't want to let our time go by without talking about it on the other end. Sure. I know on your website, you talk about kind of the social impact that your your work has um, in providing affordable, good housing to, you know, to a large number of people. And I think that's critically important right now because you can't go anywhere without hearing a story about just how tight the housing inventory is in this country. So yeah. I don't know if you wanted to bring up um, that part of the work that you do and the impact that you have. Um, on the community outside of the investor class. Yeah, no, I, I love this aspect of it because that's one of my favorite parts about real estate is, is just the tangible nature of it where you can see something and you can, you can see where it's at and you can improve it and you can like touch and feel it, right? And you can see the change. So the type of properties that we buy are typically built in the, 80s and 90s, you know, so they're somewhere 30, 40 years old at this point, buying from a lot of, you know, I'd say less sophisticated owners who just haven't really for for maybe, maybe just because they, they're, you know, poor management or often just undercapitalized, uh, you know, and they just can't keep up with the needs of the property. And so a lot of properties we buy have a ton of deferred maintenance. You know, they have a laundry list of things that need to be done for the tenants, work orders and different things. And the properties are just outdated. You know, some of them are, they, just, they don't have proper lighting, you know, in the parking lot for safety, things like that. So when we come in, I mean, those are things that we come in and we're able to infuse capital and do all these projects and really improve the property, make them safer, make them, you know, modern, make them clean and just really, I think, improve the lives for the residents. And so I, like people have gotten into like social impacts of investing in, in things. And I really think like that's what we've kind of always been doing on, on the multifamily side. I mean, like, do we make a profit? Yes, of, of course we do, because that's how we fund our deals. And we have to give a decent return to our investors. But it can really be a win-win because I think we really do improve the living conditions for many of our residents, you know, especially on some of the, some of the older properties we buy, uh, like we're, we're acquiring a property right now that was built in 1945. And like we, we walked the property and there's literally active leaks where there's water coming out of the pipes, like in the basement. Mm. I mean, it's just not like termites. I mean, there's lots of issues uh, that we're going to solve on that property. We're fixing all that stuff. And so I think it's going to improve the lives of the residents. And and so I really like that aspect of it. I think that um, especially in the Midwest where a lot of the product was built in the sixties, seventies, eighties, and it is older product. um, It needs that capital infusion to come in and really fix them up. Otherwise the buildings are still kind of falling down around people. Yeah. Yeah. And multifamily investing is probably going to be one of the ways that we get out of this housing crunch that we're in right now. You know, that's, it's a vicious cycle. There's no homes for sale. There's nowhere people to live. People don't want to sell what they have because there's nowhere to go and prices keep going up and rentals keep going up. And so you're part of the solution. You're part of the solution there, Kent, which is good. (laughs) Well, you know, we're, we're doing our little bit here and then even trying to build new, working with you know, municipalities to actually build new apartments as well. Yeah. And, and it takes a special skill set. It's not easy to do. And, and you get a lot of remonstrators that, that don't want multifamily in their backyard, you know, but I agree with you. I think it is the, the only way that we create enough affordable housing to get everybody a place to live. I mean, the studies I see are like somewhere between like nine lately, like nine to 11 million homes short in the U S mm-hmm. that's tragic. Yeah, especially for the cohort of people who are in their, you know, prime home buying years and family building years right now that want somewhere to live. Yeah. There's just nowhere to go. 
Um, th- this has been really good. You've had, you've given a lot of good insight that we haven't heard on this podcast. I'm sure that like you think this all day, every day. Um, and you probably talk on your own podcast, Ritter on Real Estate, about these types of topics. Yeah. But you know, just bother my wife about it. You know, she's so <laughs> yeah. sick of real estate, I think. <laughs> she, does she have dinner with you with headphones on? You know, listen to her? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just, yeah. She just has a recording. She just presses it. It's like, uh huh. Yes, honey. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you, yeah, you're doing great. Great job. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> See, I love it. So when Rory and I have dinner, like, so we're, so we're both talking about this stuff, right? But like, I think he hates the list of questions I have for him every single time that we sit down because they're always about like, you know, all these different projects. I am that $25,000, you know, flip to 40 <laughs> questions person that he despises. Well, it's my job to answer questions all day and then I go home <laughs> and answer more. Answer more questions, yeah. <laughs> And speaking of questions, why don't we get to our final three questions, and then we could tell everybody how to reach out to Kent. Our first one is if you can get on stage for a half hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? That's hard. So so here's mine. I, I want to, and because I've been thinking about this a lot personally lately, is I would speak to, I think, parents, particularly fathers, like, cause I got three small kids, they're six, five and three. And I'm just seeing how fast they're growing. And I just see, I try to be really intentional about spending time with them and like soaking it all in. Cause I know it goes fast. And, and you look around, like you go to the park with the kids, you see so many people are just on their phones, have no idea what's mm-hmm. going on. Don't, don't know where their kids are. Like all this of like, I think my message would be like, we got to wake up a little bit and like pay attention and like be present with, with our kids because it literally every person I meet that's older than me is like, Oh, it goes fast. You know, it goes fast. Mm-hmm. And so just if I could really get people to pay attention to that, like while they're in the moment and not regret it, yeah. you know, 10, 15 years later, that's what I would like to focus on. That's awesome. But I mean, like now you're that guy when you see like, you know, the people pushing their 10 month old on the swing, you're like, oh, it's going to go really fast. Yeah. Yeah. It was fast. <laughs> yeah. It does. I mean, our daughter, she just turned three and yeah. you know, the, the photos on Facebook that remind me of when I, we first brought her home and, you know, my mother held her for the first time. It was like, wow, that was three years ago. And I remember yeah. that day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're in such a grind with, the, with you know, yeah. it's like, it's like the days are long, but the, the years are short. And oh gotta, man. You, you I, gotta I say gotta that. Pull yeah. out. You know, you gotta, and being present, you know, I'm glad that you said that because be present, you know, I see the same thing. I'm guilty of it sometimes also, but you know, the parents we are all on are, their right? We all are. Yeah. It's tough not to be, but being present and the kids notice it too. They really do. You know, mm-hmm. I've actually, yeah. I've been caught multiple times by Cecily, our daughter, where she's like grabbing my phone away from me or she's yeah. like, she knows. Me too. It's like, I'm not perfect by any means, you know? I mean, literally, it's just like something that that I have just been so focused on lately because like, I'm just seeing like, I think what's really happening is like my, my oldest is graduating kindergarten. She's going into mm-hmm. first grade. I'm like, oh my God, I have a grade school kid now. Like yeah. they're, they're going to be moving out. <laughs> yep. Yeah. When do they stop talking to you? You know, TikTok, TikTok, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Our second question, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that is impacting the way that you're working today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. That's a really good one. I would say I've had some pretty 
big events. One though that I think specifically impacts my my work isn't necessarily a, a huge thing, but I um, when I was first a management consultant and uh, like first year out of school, you know, I was. I've always been pretty successful, you know, throughout my college career and all this and have been recognized and things and got the job and I'm just like heads down. I think I'm doing, I'm doing great work. And then like six months in my, I get like a performance evaluation and, and it was pretty bad. Like it was, you know, it wasn't what I expected at all. And I thought I was doing a great job. I'm like delivering on everything. What it really taught me was the importance of, of communication, which we've hit on a theme, right? Yeah. Communication, but also just like, self-promotion and marketing, like nobody's going to promote you better than you can yourself. And I think whether you're, what, no matter what your job you're in, you got to make sure people know the things that you're doing and the good stuff you're doing. Because basically it was kind of like, we talked about communication earlier. We don't hear from somebody. Like I just wasn't focused on giving updates really. I was just doing the work. I wasn't focused on telling people about what I was doing. And there was this impression that I really wasn't doing anything because that's what happens when you don't, when mm -hmm. people don't hear from you, their minds go to a negative place. They think, oh, nothing's happening, blah, blah, blah. And so it just really taught me, I was really good at getting people promoted later in my career. And I would coach them on how to communicate and self-promote and how to do it tactfully. And, uh, and I, I prided myself in that and being able to get people promoted. And it was all really just based on that. It, it was just about, you know, you can be doing the best job in the world, but if nobody knows about it, then it doesn't matter. And so just, just make sure that, you know, just make sure you're advocating for yourself, I guess yeah. is the point. It's the fine line, right, Rory? I mean, like we're trying not to be too self-promoting. And I think that's why we try to highlight people on this podcast and not us. But assembling these people is really the value that we're adding also for the podcast too. So I'll, yeah. I'll take it. Super difficult to promote yourself with the microphone off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add to this also, like we're going through diversity training right now at work. There was a topic came up about introverts and extroverts and, you know, encouraging managers to try to give as much floor to introverts as well. Because the extrovert, extroverts can take over a sales floor. They could take over a meeting and an introvert might feel like they don't want to contribute when they might have great ideas to contribute, but you, you have to give them a floor to be able to contribute. And I'm sure that you probably work with people that are both introverted and extroverted. Both of you do, you know, and it's important mm -hmm. to kind of hear from them both. 100%. And you may not believe this, but like, I'm a natural introvert. Like, like after this, I'm going to go sit in a dark room for an hour and, and recharge. Yep. But, uh, but no, but I really had to learn uh, to be more extroverted and, and I'm passionate about what I do. I love talking about this stuff. So it's easy, but like, I think that's really what I was, I was one of those introverts, you know, yeah. and I wasn't self-promoting in that way. And, and I had to really learn that skill set. Yeah. The, the podcasting is a great way to do that though. And like, I would have never guessed that Kent, just from, you know, this conversation and from what I've seen online, you know, I mean, like you, you host, are you hosting um, meetups in, in Indianapolis? Is that your meetup? Yeah. I host the yeah. meetup every month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you know, introverts don't do podcasts, video podcasts, appear in other people's podcasts, uh, you know, host meetups. And if you are one, which you just said that you are, then you're doing a good job in forcing yourself to do the things, you know, that are external. Yeah. You know, I look at introvert and extrovert as like, as energy flow. Like, cause my mm -hmm. wife is the, the extrovert of like all extroverts. Like she, she always wants the spotlight and, <laughs> and I love her for that. And that's why we, we get along well, cause I give it to her. Right. Yeah. And, um, but like she could be in the spotlight all day and it actually just adds to her energy and just feeds her. Right. For me, like if, if I go and I speak on stage, 
Like, I don't want to talk to anybody else for like three hours. You know, I want to go, I want to go like hang out in my room you know, right. after that. It's like, I really do. It, it kind of, it drains energy and I have to like recharge. And that's kind of how I look at introvert extrovert is like, are you getting energy or is it taking energy from you? Yeah, that's so powerful. Our final question for you, tell us something that you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Could be anything in the world. Yeah, well, I warned you guys before this. Like, I'm not the, definitely not the hippest person in the world at this point with my three small kids. Like, yeah, I watch a lot of, like you said, like Coco Melon and mm-hmm. other things. I would say my wife and I, we just finished watching Ozark, which yeah, is cool. uh, has been one of our favorite shows. And, and we don't we don't watch a ton of TV. So we, mm-hmm. you know, when we find one that we really get into, like that's uh, it's kind of a treat for us. So that's our that's that's mine. Rory, watch that. I think I watched it, but I fell asleep. It's, that's how it started, but I, I've watched some of it. But if I ever circle back to it, I have a few seasons to catch up on. So no spoilers, yeah. please. I'll circle back to that in 2027 or sometime, and it'll be great because all the episodes will be ready and waiting for me. There you go. <laughs> but man, it's it's tough. You got three kids. I get it. You know, there's no TV time for you. Coco Melon is, has been on our household for a long time now. Yeah, like my uh, guilty pleasure is because I'm, I'm a big football fan. I like NFL. Mm-hmm. And, and so like if... You know, I, I try to like watch Colts games on Sunday, yep. but I usually get through about a quarter before I have all three kids yelling at me to change the channel. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. The kids control the TV around here. That's for sure. You listen to Pat McAfee's show? I do. Yeah. You do? Yeah. He's quite a character. He's great. <laughs> yeah, yes, he is. He's quite a celebrity here in town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know anything about him until his show came out and he's an announcer for uh, WWE now as well. Then I kind of dug in and I'm like, oh, now I get why they brought this guy on. I mean, like, you know, he's a personality driven kicker for the Colts. Exactly. So Ritter on Real Estate, that's your Instagram handle. Uh, That's also the podcast name. You know, your website is your name, right? KentRitter.com. That's right. So tell us, how can people get a hold of you? Um, Lead forms there, LinkedIn, like what do you prefer? Yeah. I mean, the website is the best way. That's where the home base. And yeah, you can go to the website. You can see deals, deals that we have going on. You can get the blog, the podcast, and you can, there's a a form to contact me. There's kind of a general, if you want to contact me or there's a sign up to be an investor. So, and then I I would say, you know, to all those newer investors or people that want to invest, like go there, go to our new investor section, check out the terminology, check out the FAQs, like just understanding the language will get you so far and understand these deals. That's great. Well, thanks for providing the resource and all the great information on on this episode of the podcast. We really appreciate it. Rory, where can people find you? Um, People can come take a look for me at Next Home Title Town. That's nexthometitletown.com or Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. Awesome. So Kent, Rory, thank you both for being on the podcast. Uh, We really appreciate it. We'll put all those links in the show notes also, Kent, so people can easily find their way to your website. If you've made it this far, if you could please subscribe or like this podcast, we'd really appreciate it. We also love good reviews. So if you want to give one, I could help you write it if you'd like. But we read all the comments. And if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, You can get to me directly, jason at nexthometitletown.com. And that's it. That's another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Thank you, Kent. Thank you, Rory. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com.
Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.